9 out of 10 startups fail. Women and minority-led companies receive less than 10% of all venture capital. This is an environment designed for failure. Startup Hype Man's mission is to use the power of story to make success inevitable, not the exception. And this podcast is designed for entrepreneurs to share lessons learned from their stories so that you can figure out what whatever it takes means for your company to make it. Let's kick it. Yeah, let me, let's see, let me see. There's like a way to do that on your Mac, right? From the Hype HQ Recording Studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I am your host and the Startup Hype Man, Raj Nation. Every week we bring you real talk and unpack the behind the curtain strategies with the entrepreneurs who are doing it or who have been there, done that, all to help your startup grow up and stand out. Join the Hype Nation to catch every new episode, plus get resources and other stuff that actually help you, not the whack promotional junk that other companies try to shove down your throat. All you have to do is add your email at startuphypeman.com. Ready for some real talk? Time now for me, Raj Nation, to turn it over to, well, me, Raj Nation, for this week's conversation. Welcome, everybody, to the Startup Hype Man podcast. We are kicking off season 11 of the show with AJ Gull, the founder of GMAS. GMAS is a bootstrap company that in three years has produced 250,000 users. Amidst that, that, is, that includes 10,000 daily active users. And they have reached number four ranking or rating in the Google app, or excuse me, the Gmail app store. A lot of cool things have come out of GMAS in a short amount of time. AJ, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be your inaugural guest for your new season. That's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's an honor, I suppose, but we'll, we'll find out over the next 30 minutes if it is an honor. <laughs> so we first uh, actually got in contact because I am a GMAS user myself. And yes. Just in using the product for probably, I think, maybe six months now, um, I finally reached out and was like, hey, do you want to be on this show? And you were like, yeah, it looks pretty interesting. So our topic today is how do you scale with minimal customer service? To kick off, can you just let our listeners know why this is on your mind and why this is important to you? Yeah, so customer service has never been something that I look forward to doing. It, it's always seemed like an expense and a burden that slows me down from evolving the product and building out the platform or figuring out something that's going to get more users or trying some new growth hack that I'm excited about to see what happens. And so customer service is like the opposite of all that. It's the least sexy, the least exciting, this thing that you kind of have to do to help people out so they continue to use your platform, but hope that you don't have to do because the user will just figure it out on their own. And it's interesting because I almost missed your invitation to be on your podcast just because you had responded to kind of an, a thread that is sent out automatically, but not necessarily uh, read by humans. Um, but by happenstance, I, I happened to, to see it and I'm glad I did. Well, it was meant to be then. <laughs> so, and this is interesting because it's a, it's an alternative viewpoint than you'll hear from that you'll hear from a lot of founders, a lot of investors, 
There's a lot of, you know, leaders in the space in general who will say, yeah. place an emphasis on customer service. It's important yeah. to take care of the customer, all that stuff. Um, I want to just take a little sidebar here before we dive deep into this. Let's learn a little bit more about who is AJ. Um, where did you grow up and how do you feel like that environment shaped your personality? Interesting question. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which is a relatively small town in southwestern Ohio. Um, I feel like I have a fairly Midwestern kind of personality. Um, you have the I, Midwestern accent, that's for sure. Okay, all right. <laughs> and it's hard to describe what that means. I just have realized over the course of my life, or I've noticed over the course of my life that when I interact with someone else from the Midwest, there's this sort of commonality that I notice, like in our in our gestures, in our facial expressions, in our intonation as we say certain things, in our choice of words that I don't have in common with, say, someone from the East Coast or the West Coast. So it's hard to put my finger on like what those personality attributes are, but it's like this maybe unspoken bond. Uh, that I can feel. I grew up in a family of software developers. So Dayton is a very manufacturing-oriented town. Um, General Motors had a big truck plant there when I was growing up that has since gone out of business. Um, my dad worked for a company called NCR, which was this big cash register company in the 70s and 80s that transformed into an IT company. So my dad's been in software development his entire life. I have an older brother who became a software developer and I basically followed in their footsteps. Now, that's interesting that it was a town or it was a family of software developers amidst a town of, or an area region of manufacturers. So on the one hand, you have the Midwestern vibe, which I would say you know, the word I would put on it is like a general sense of like homeliness, right? And, and camaraderie amidst each other or amongst each other. Um, and then at the same time, you have almost this like renegade, family more or less amidst all of the manufacturing going on. So when I'm thinking about just like better understanding you and the company you've built now and, and the way you've gone about it, the customer service angle, um, I, I, I'm a little bit surprised to hear given the Midwestern roots, which is really all about like, Hey, like take care of your neighbor, um, you know, look out for each other, smile a lot that you went this, other path with your company of, hey, I'm going to scale this company with minimal customer service. So do you think it has to do with the fact that your family was doing something different than everyone else around you growing up? A little bit. So in a way, I feel like my dad kind of invented this concept of working virtually, working remotely. And this is like in the 1980s and early 90s. So after he left NCR, he was working virtually as the head software developer for a company in Chicago, working from our house in Dayton. And he was, uh, I think, the only remote employee for the company. And, you know, I observed that. And uh, that's what allowed us to do something different than what was going on in the rest of my hometown, which was a very manufacturing-focused town. Um, so that probably had an influence on me, just the virtualization of a software operation and 
the way we provide customer service now is done in a virtual capacity with uh, a couple of my teammates who were in the Philippines. So yeah, there was definitely an influence there. But at the same time, I mean, there is tech activity all throughout the Midwest. I mean, there are software companies and tech startups all throughout the Midwest, even though the traditional roots of the area is in a different industry. Do you recall what your, your first like foray into software development was personally? Like, was there like a side project you worked I do, on? I do, I um, do. So I was learning to code in basic. Basic wow. was this. QBasic like, or is that different than basic? No, you know, um, I think, I can't remember if QBasic came before or after regular basic, but okay. I was programming in regular basic. Um, in, uh, you know, this would have been before Windows. This is MS-DOS-based PC, and I'm uh, programming in BASIC, and my first, the first thing I ever wrote that I finished and was proud of was a piano program. So a piano would be drawn on the screen, and you would use the keys on your keyboard. It was the, the middle row of keys, so A, S, D, F, G, H, J, K, L, to yeah. hit the piano keys that appeared uh, on screen. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was funny because BASIC wasn't the most sophisticated programming language, especially when it came to audio. So if you held a key down and you wanted the note to like last a few seconds, it would be like, it wouldn't be like, duh, it would be like, Da, 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 da. <laughs> because you know how if you if you hold it if you hold a key down like the first letter will appear then there'll be a pause and then you'll get the repetition of the letter right yeah yeah <laughs> inputs used to work so yeah <laughs> and then one day so nobody back the concept of like backing up your stuff certainly backing up your stuff to the cloud wasn't right a concept but even backing up your stuff wasn't really something that I was doing as a fifth grader. Um, and one day I came home from school and my dad was like, well, I noticed that like all the files on the computer were gone. My dad had formatted the hard drive and failed to tell me and I lost the whole thing. Oh. Pretty sad day. <laughs> and that was the end of your music career. Yes. yes. <laughs> when I was, I think, eight years old uh, during a summer break, my dad forced my brother and I to, uh, I think it was like a four or six week program. We had to walk a mile down the street to go to the local community college and take a Q basic class uh, because I, I think he was ahead of his time then, but he was saying, he was like, he was like, you need to know and understand computers well. The world is going to revolve around computers. Learn this. Oh, now, granted, yeah. he was having us take a class of like what at that point was a dated language because this was like yeah, 90s. sure. But it was interesting that he was saying that. And now I ended up never getting into coding. But I do remember in that class, as a class taught by the teacher, we collectively like made the game Snake <laughs> on the computer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so well, hey. I, I get the feeling of accomplishment, though, when, when you yeah. create something, even as, as simple as it might be. Look, so, even though QBasic and Basic are outdated languages, the concepts are still the same. You still have your if-then statements and mm -hmm. your for loops. So I think your dad's thinking was ahead of his time, and he was spot on. Well, and I think he also might have been ahead of his time in the fact that I see that you went to Case Western University for yeah. 
Uh, I didn't go there, but my dad, we went to like a career or a college fair at the end of high school and Case Western was one of the tables and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. It's pretty interesting. The guy behind the table happened to be the friend or my, one of my friend's dads who was an alumni, you know, doing his like alumni duties. And my dad was convinced that because I knew this guy or, you know, I was friends with his daughter that he'd be able to help get me in and get like a scholarship or something like that. <laughs> if only it worked that way. You know, and, and to this day, and I ended up going to DePaul University here in Chicago and I got oh, an yeah. education. I have a great network because of it. I had an awesome time. To this day, my dad will still bring up, yeah, you know, you could have gone to Case Western. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, I've like, I've never heard Case referred to in that context. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, that's that's funny because because my parents are like, I can't believe you went to Case. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you tell me about your experience there? Um, did you continue? I know you were studying computer science there, but did you continue to develop things on your own? Did you have any maybe early entrepreneurial experiences there? Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually went to Case Western not to pursue the computer sciences, but I went to Case Western because I had been accepted into this medical program. Um, they have these combined medical programs where you're accepted out of high school and you're guaranteed admission into the medical school uh, without having to take the MCATs. And I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor. You know, I have this Indian background. My parents had kind of pushed me into medicine throughout my high school years. So I went to Case Western with the intention of going on to the medical school and becoming a doctor. And um, I quickly lost interest in that because I started college in 1995. And I don't know how old you are, Rajiv, or what you were doing in 1995. 30. So but, I was young then. I was like seven or eight years old then. <laughs> but 1995 was a pretty interesting year to start college because that's when, like, the web browser, that's when Netscape 1.0 was, like, taking over the world. Mm. And everybody was trying to figure out what a website is and how you get one. So in our dorm rooms, there was, like, we were always, like, abuzz talking about the latest thing on the web because – that was super exciting. And I got caught up in that excitement and wanted to learn HTML and wanted to learn how to build a website as a lot of people in college did. And Case Western, one of the great things about Case Western was it was one of the few universities in the country that had a fiber optic network. So when it came to internet access, we had super fast internet access from our dorm rooms. Now this is relative to the times, right? When we say super fast. You know what? Even relative, well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the fiber optic network might have given us, I don't remember, a speed of like 10 or 20 megs, which you know, still, is still what good. a lot of homes have today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the speed plus the timing and the community of like nerds at Case Western provided for this environment of like learning about software development, the web, programming, and uh, I got caught up in that, and uh, it, was, it wasn't uh, long until I decided that I didn't want to pursue medicine, and I wanted to pursue software and internet development. So you end up building a pretty much a career out of this, uh, basically a career out of being on the internet, more or less, uh, including starting a company in uh, the year 2000 called Django Mail, which is yeah. an email marketing company. It ends up getting acquired actually 13 years later, which is a long time to commit to something, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, and especially when you look at every hot new startup that's out today, they're like 
oh yeah, we're going to exit in three years, we're going to exit in five years, right? And it's like, hey, sometimes you got to commit to this thing. If, it, if it's going to exit, it, it takes yep. a while for that thing to actually yep. and become acquirable or yep. exitable. Um, from there, you end up, um, GMAS, as we said, is three years old, as is another company called WordZen. Uh, so GMAS is uh, basically a plug-in for Gmail. WordZen is a proofreading service and like an AI proofreading service for Gmail. How did these companies come about? Were you experiencing this problem yourself? Were you just like, I need to come up with another company? How, let me just put, put an idea out of a hat. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, so random. Some things happened that led to the creation of these two products. So I sold my previous email marketing platform, Django Mail, in 2013. I worked for the new owner for about a year. And then for about a year afterwards, I was just going to Starbucks every day and reading and thinking and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I was in no hurry. Um, I wanted to wait until an idea really resonated with me where I thought like, wow, this would be, this would be magical to build and, and try to build a business off of. And given my email marketing experience, I've always been kind of, my expertise has been in the email ecosystem. I have a very good understanding of how email works from a technical perspective. And I had also, I've also always been interested in, in writing. And so I, I generally think I'm pretty good with the English language. And as a result, I would get asked by friends and colleagues to review an important email, like an important email going to a boss or an important email trying to save a customer or an important email trying to negotiate with a vendor. And so I'd be people's go-to guy to look over an email and offer suggestions before they hit send. And I was also hearing that a lot of people's like biggest pain point throughout their workday was managing their email and responding to all the email they get. So I started thinking about how I could offer a solution to this because it was a compelling problem for which a solution didn't exist. And as I was thinking about this, Google did something that pushed all of this along and that was they created an API for Gmail. So they created this system to allow developers to program on top of Gmail. And that's what made the idea that I had been thinking about and marinating in my head technically possible. So that's when I first started building WordZen. Uh, as you mentioned, WordZen uh, is a proofreading service and kind of a, like we're a concierge for your email where we can write your emails for you. Um, it's actually not AI powered though, it's human powered. So we have a staff of English experts who write your emails for you. Uh, and then GMAS actually was born out of WordZen. GMAS and WordZen share a lot of the same code base because they're both plugins for Gmail that add a button to your compose window in Gmail. And so uh, basically a day came where I was like, oh man, I'd really like to send a mass email to, to 50 people, the 50 users that had signed up for WordZen. And I assumed that there would be an easy way to do that in Gmail. I assumed that somebody would have already developed a plugin for Gmail to do that. And I was kind of shocked to discover that that didn't exist. And when I saw that, it like created this, this fire in me. I was like, holy crap, like I've, I've gotten pretty good at developing Gmail plugins. I have this 15-year background in email marketing. Like I'm the guy. I'm, I'm the perfect guy to build what I hope will become like 
the standard for sending email campaigns from inside Gmail. And so that's how GMAS was born. So let's talk now about how you've actually built this product and this company out and come to our topic exploration question here, which is the idea of scaling with minimal customer service. And again, to reiterate what I mentioned in your introduction was you're up to 250,000 users now, which includes 10,000 daily active users, and you're the number four app in the Gmail app store. So those are no small feats. Congratulations on all of that. Thanks. Now, to get to that point, one would think you've got to pay a lot of attention to the customer. And I'm not saying you have not paid attention, but I'd like you to kind of like, I'll say the floor is yours here because you've just chosen a different route to pay attention to the customer. Yeah, you know, as you said at the beginning of our talk, the conventional wisdom amongst the startup community is that you have to take care of your, your customer. And, you know, we don't ignore our customer, but providing support and hand-holding our customer just isn't a priority for us. And what is a priority is building a great product that's generally easy to use where support isn't really required. Now, I think the company is a reflection of my own personal values. So, like, I'm pretty skilled with email and email marketing, and I designed the product to attract that type of user. So our target user is someone who kind of already gets it, someone who you know, doesn't need help uh, creating their first campaign or, you know, understanding what uh, open tracking is or understanding how to, how to uh, uh, read their analytics after their campaign is sent. Our target user is someone who already understands those concepts and someone who already understands those concepts is the least likely candidate to need help with something uh, from us. So, you know, uh, the, the 900 pound gorilla in the email marketing business is MailChimp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, MailChimp, they've kind of evolved since then, but they used to take a, a similar approach. In fact, MailChimp even used to say that, you know, if you need a lot of help with your email marketing, please visit this link. And that link would take the user to Constant Contact, which was a competitor. <laughs> so, uh, and Constant Contact's focus was like giving you 24-hour phone support and walking yeah. you through, hand-holding you through. Well, and Constant Contact still is very much about like, hey, the brick-and-mortar small business owner who needs to get online and recontact yeah. your you know, patrons, exactly. use us. Right, right, right. So, you know, GMAS targets a more sophisticated user. Um, we've provided contextual help throughout our UI so that we try to anticipate what question you're going to have and answer it before, you know, you even realized uh, that there was something you didn't understand. And we've done that by looking for patterns over time. So with this huge base of users that we've amassed, we see the questions that people are asking and we see when they're asking them in the phase of like, you know, sending, prepping their campaign, sending it or looking at analytics. And that has allowed us to place little tidbits of help throughout our UI uh, uh, so that, and, and then we experiment with that and we like watch support questions go up or go down based on something we've done. And then we adjust that to, uh, you know, try to be as optimal as possible. Yeah. And 
you know, let's, let's kind of dig into that a little bit more because I think it's, it's a unique way, or maybe not a unique way, but you've done it in a smart way to where when you sign up for GMAS, there's the automated email onboarding campaign, right? To show you like, hey, here's yep. basically, here's what the product is and does and here's how you use it. Um, but then how did you, how did you realize okay, this, this, in, in this portion of their usage cycle, they're going to have this question. Were you at first maybe like studying a particular set of users? Were you hand-holding for a particular set of users and saying, okay, these are the problems they have. Now we can scale it up with less service? Sort of, yeah. You know, the trend was like, you know, it's funny, like in, in the beginning, and I've, I've been like this for, with every software as a service operation that I've started. Like in the beginning, when I've got my first five or 10 users, I'm like, hey guys, here's my cell phone number. Call me anytime, day or night. I'll help you with whatever you need. And then like the first 100 users, it's like, all right, I'm not gonna give out my cell phone number, but hey, here's my email address. And you know, find me on, you know, get in touch with me on Slack. I'll you know, walk you through anything you need. And the first 1,000 users, it's like, all right, I'm not gonna give out my email anymore. Now <laughs> like we have this help desk system, so now post on there, I'll get back to you. And then the first 10,000 years, it's like, all right, I'm not going to respond personally myself anymore, but I've got a couple of guys I've trained. So there's like this evolution of like wanting to like provide the most help to someone right away to like wanting to back off of it and, and scale and focus on scale and not, not the handholding. So um, what was the question again? <laughs> well, it comes back to, to understand the behavior patterns. Were you individually studying a particular group? Oh, okay, or right. Were you like closely talking to a group of people to understand? No, so behavior? from the beginning, I was using Zendesk, which is a super popular help desk system. And, you know, it, uh, we would, I would just, I would study the flow of questions coming into Zendesk. And it was easy to pick up on patterns, you know, like I could see that people were confused about how, how we handle bounces. In fact, that was a question you asked, um, I noticed. Uh, yeah. and I apologize if you never got an answer. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> okay. um, so I would see these patterns of confusion that people had, and then I would write a blog post about it, and I would um, uh, make it so that the blog post would appear strategically throughout the interface. Uh, so... Yeah, it's just a matter of studying the help desk question flow and then making changes and then hopefully watching that same question flow go down. And now at this point, have you done away with the Zendesk help desk? No, but I'm about to actually. So, so we're still using Zendesk and we will still answer your question um, uh, if you contact us on there. But what we're in the process of doing is taking our minimal support one step further uh, and we're going to slowly eliminate the Zendesk system in favor of a forum-based support system on our website mm. so that if you post a question, anybody can answer it, kind of like a, a stack overflow model of providing support. Uh, and what my hope is that some of our more impassioned users will, will be interested enough that they'll start answering questions for us so that um, I don't need dedicated support guys anymore. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things I want to point out from what you said there uh, in the last few minutes. Um, you talked about how you started writing blog posts to, ex to provide answers to the questions that people were having. 
And what I've noticed as a result of that is you've basically built an entire blog that is an FAQ, right? It's just disguised as a blog, more or less. Yeah. And you are able to point people basically to something that is probably going to, I'd say in most cases, better explain it than a human chat bot or even just a human on the phone because it's step by step, there's screenshots, things of that nature, right? So in a way, it actually is more helpful than if you were going to get on the phone with a customer service rep, um, who then has to be like, let me log into your account, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that was, was a pretty uh, interesting technique and it seems to be working well. The other thing that I've noticed too that I think makes this model successful for you, because I, I would imagine you're not getting many complaints about lack of customer service, right? Sometimes we do just because um, a really technical issue or a really complex issue has to be passed back to me as the developer of the system. Yeah. And I, I tend to, I check in the support about once a week. So if you have a really difficult question that needs to be answered by me, you're not going to hear from me potentially for a week. And that, can, that does frustrate people. And I, and I don't mean to say no one's getting upset, right? But with a lot of users, clearly enough people have adopted this framework and have come to understand how, how it operates, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think what's helped with that, whether you have realized this or not, I don't know. But what I noticed when I started using the product was right out of the gate in like the onboarding sequence, part of the, one of those emails says like, GMAS operates on a minimal customer service like basis. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. here's the best way to find help. But if yeah. you're going to email, expect this type of turnaround time. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you were very upfront about it. I wanted of, to set the expectation. Exactly. And that yeah. I think is so key because it, it's a lot of companies want to provide the world for their customers and like bless yeah. them for wanting to do that. And some are able to accomplish that. But if it's not how your business is set up, don't try to sell something. Don't try to sell a bill of goods that you cannot fulfill. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, the, the goal was to set the expectation from the outset to re to reduce dissatisfaction and to give our users the mindset of, of, uh, trying to help themselves before they reach out to us. And as you mentioned, we've taken this different approach with support by basically our blog being a giant FAQ. So when we do answer a question, when someone does ask a question, oftentimes the answer is a URL. We don't even write in complete sentences. So, <laughs> so you as a user could write us a couple paragraphs uh, indicating you're confused about how click tracking works and why your click tracking reports are one way versus how you'd expect. And we will respond to you with a URL that basically explains, answers your question in a blog post. Yeah. Yeah. And it's as simple as, yeah, just the link and then you click and read it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we, one of the other expectations we, we set in our communication around support is don't be offended by that. We're not, we're not trying to be jerks. We're just trying to be fast. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it comes back to the honesty of it. And as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, you've placed a significant emphasis on the English language in your life. So you're carefully crafting like the communication in a way. Yes. Ideally, more understanding of this whole process. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, you know, there's, I'm a software developer, so what excites me most about my business is 
the features and the development of the product. And then probably secondary to that is the uh, experimentation in, how in, in growing. So mm -hmm. growth hacking, uh, trying different digital marketing strategies. Uh, and the last, on the, you know, as I mentioned before, the least exciting thing is, is support. So, you know, I, I guess I generally try to think of how to do things in an unconventional way because I think what, what makes a startup follow the pattern of most startups is by doing what every other startup does. And so I, I put a lot of focus into thinking about how can mm -hmm. we have a different philosophy about things than the typical startup. And there's a lot of examples of those. Yeah. And is this something that you think you'll want to seek outside capital for, or is this a bootstrapped operation to the end? Maybe. You know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a, something I think about a lot. Um, I've never done that before. I've never sought outside capital except for when I sold my prior company, um, which was 100% acquisition. Um, there's an article that I read a long time ago that, sticks with me um, that talked about startups that raise money versus startups that don't raise money. And the article was called um, Being Rich Versus Being King. It's a famous article from the Harvard Business Review. And basically it talks about how if you want to be king, if you want to be fully in control of your operation, then you don't take outside money. If being in control is your priority, you don't take outside money. But if being super wealthy is your priority, then you do take outside money. Uh, so basically the path to wealth is giving up control hmm. um, uh, with, with the rare exception being like, like um, I, can, I can't, well, I don't know. But yeah, so, so I've often thought about that balance, like being in control versus, versus growing and making a lot of money. And I feel like my preference has always been being in control. Hmm. So I probably, like my just inherent personality is one that would would shy away from the fundraising process. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that's a great perspective to have. It really is about what are you trying to get out of this at the end of the day? Cause also if you raise outside money, that means exit is the only end game. Yeah. It's exit or die. There's nothing, there's no in between. Right. Versus can right. you build a successful business, keep running it, have a happy life, be right. comfortable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So before we wrap up, Thank you for sharing all this with us. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know uh, where they can learn more about GMAS, maybe try the product out, and even, uh, well, your model is built on not getting in touch with you, but where they can at least find you online. <laughs> no, no, please. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to, to talk to people, so please do get in touch. Um, the website for GMAS is gmas.co, G-M-A-S-S.co. Uh, I hope to have the .com someday. Uh, it's been tricky. <laughs> uh, my email address is my first name at wordzen.com. So A-J-A-Y at wordzen, W-O-R-D-Z-E-N.com. And on Twitter, I am part-time snob. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then to wrap up, uh, let's each give our kind of top line answer here to the topic question for the day was how do you scale with minimal customer service? Uh, I'll go first and I'll let you close out, AJ. So my answer here, how do you scale with minimal customer service? The two things that jumped out to me were, number one, know if it's the right audience to have minimal customer service for. If you are going after a market where you are out, you're basically having to create a significant behavior change, you're going to need 
heavy customer service, or at least a standard amount of customer service, versus if you're going after a market who they're already doing the thing, they just need a, diff a different service that does it better, there's already a lot of inherent understanding about what the product is or what the product would do for them. They probably don't need as much or any handholding. And then after knowing if it is the right audience to do this for, um, the, the, again, the thing that jumped out to me was be forthright with the communication that, hey, we do not provide hand, you know, like 24 seven customer service. This is how you can find your answers. And if you want to get in touch with us, expect this turnaround time. So just honest communication would be the other part of it. AJ, how do you scale with minimal customer service? Build a product that's intuitive from the get go and target users that will allow you to have the operation that you want. So target users that are the kind of personalities that will want to self-support rather than, than reaching out. And yeah, that's, that's it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's uh, right. You're basically, you target like entrepreneurs and salespeople. Yeah, totally. To totally. be sending out a lot of emails and if it looks from their Gmail, it's kind of more attractive. Right. But these are yeah. all people who are self starters who are figure outing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. They're figure outers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> AJ Gull, founder of GMAS and WordZen. Thank you for joining us on the Startup Podcast. Thanks, Rajiv. This has been awesome. That brings us to a close. Did you like what you heard? Did it tingle your earbuds? Support your startup ecosystem and share this episode with another founder to help them. If you don't have anyone in mind, then leave a rating and review of the show on iTunes so more entrepreneurs can learn about it. And if you want more, head to StartupHypeMan.com and click on the knowledge section to get a bonus blog post written by this week's guest where they unpack the topic even more. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Startup Hype Man is more than a podcast. In fact, we support startups across the United States and globally develop sales and marketing acumen with messaging that stands out to customers and stands apart from competitors. Learn more and fill out a form at StartupHypeMan.com if you want to chat. Shout out to this week's guests for spending their time with us and shout out to music artist Sir the Baptist for providing our show's theme song. Catch you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Instead of sundown, too. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Tell me what you're gonna do. This is dance with the devil, girl. And if you can't get it loose, then you fall into the truth. It got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Instead of sundown, with the devil